LA in practice needs to be hitting real students, real teachers for real effect. The learning analytics projects that are the most successful are the ones that begin with a pedagogical question or a real challenge. Welcome to Solar Spotlight, the podcast from the Society for Learning Analytics Research, SOLAR. In this podcast series, we have conversations with guest speakers to engage the wider community with leading research, practice, and key issues in learning analytics. I'm Shibani Antonet from the University of Technology, Sydney, the host for this episode. Learning analytics should ultimately be about improving learning, and to that end, we are looking for real-world experiences, the impact and adoption of learning analytics in classroom practice. In today's episode, we are joined by two special guests to discuss the practicalities in learning analytics implementations. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Leah McFadgen. I uh, am speaking to you uh, from the virtual world of the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. I've been working in learning analytics for hmm, about the last 10 years, uh, all at UBC, originally in the Faculty of Arts and now in the Faculty of Education. And I've been lucky to have um, a lot of free reign in a very exploratory role for most of that time where I've had freedom to develop projects to really discover ways that learning analytics can help faculty and instructors and educational leadership in um, thinking about their teaching and learning and making decisions about their courses and their students. So I've worked with LMS data in with some of the early people doing analysis of LMS metrics that we could get out of the back end. I've, I've spent some time in exploring use usefulness of social network data, looking at student engagement and um, a lot of work uh, investigating learner demographics and enrollment patterns. Um, more recently, now that I'm in the Faculty of Education, uh, I've developed and I teach a course about learning analytics for educators. And I've been experimenting with different approaches to text analysis for curriculum review. So that's the span of pragmatic work I've been engaged in. Great. Uh, so hi, I'm Danny Liu. I'm, I'm an associate professor in the um, Central Learning and Teaching Portfolio at the University of Sydney. Um, I, I was a molecular biologist once upon a time, but I found my passion in learning and teaching. My, my, um, my day job is actually leading academic development at the university, um, where I kind of provide strategy around educational innovation and then design and run um, professional learning for academics and professional staff. And really, learning analytics is my night job once the kids go to bed. Um, and what I do there is mainly around helping uh, helping the instructors I work with um, leverage data to uh, kind of reach out to students and personalize support for them and, and better, better um, I guess, engage their students. Great. Thanks for joining us. Can we start with an introduction of uh, what practice or practitioner means to you in learning analytics? I really appreciate this question because it's one that's really significant for me. It's significant for me because of the work I've been doing. I think I very much straddle the um, research and practice roles and have done over this decade. And that's relatively unusual. I've had lucky freedom to play in both of those ponds. It's even more important because uh, the definition of learning analytics that we have embraced from the beginning has always had one of application. This is not a pure research field. The goal is, has always been at least asserted to be 
improving teaching and learning, optimizing teaching and learning in the environments in which it occurs, according to Sola. So I'm, I'm very interested yeah. in how we get learning analytics into the hands of the people who need it. And I don't think we've been very good at that yet. I'm aware of practitioner frustration. Um, I think I've thought a lot about who practitioners are. Maybe Danny will disagree with me. I think the word practitioner has been used a lot in a slightly dismissive kind of way to kind of push off, you know, like the technical people who do the, the, the coding and stuff and who don't really need to be involved in the real work of learning analytics. Whereas I actually, in my own head, practitioners to me are a huge group of people with diverse skills whose core focus and role, they may do some research on the side, but their real focus is applying learning analytics and getting it into the hands of educators rather than let's say developing it or testing it um, for research purposes. So that, that includes teachers and educators and faculty members who are teaching and who want to use the data um, as they teach or after they teach. But it also might involve, in my mind, at least learning designers and others involved in the work of actually getting the, getting the learning analytics into people's hands. So I think for myself, I don't know about you, Danny, but I think I straddle both roles a little bit. I've been involved in research, but I'm kind of moving along the spectrum to the, the hands-on stuff. Yeah, what do you think, Danny? Yeah, I love the idea of that spectrum. Um, that was exactly what I had in mind as well. It, it's kind of the from from research on, on one end of the spectrum to practice on the other, totally. and and it's you're not a con, uh, you know, fixed on one, one end. Um, I, I, I don't consider myself a very good researcher, and so I probably consider myself towards the practitioner end of that spectrum. Um, and for me, just just like you said, I think it's that whole community of people around it who support um, putting LA into practice, um, in, into live classes and live cohorts. And so, uh, Shabani, in your intro, you mentioned something about classroom practice. And I think that's exactly it. It's, it's LA in practice needs to be hitting real students, real teachers for real effect. Um, and so for me, I think just like Leah said, I, I think it's around not just the teachers, but it's a whole ecosystem of people. So not just including the software, but the professional development around it, um, yes. the support models and people who support it, the faculty and central personnel like learning designers, coders and technical staff and infrastructure people, all those people, and also the user community that's built around all those things. And so I think collectively they form the practitioner base for LA. Right. Totally. Right. I really like the ecosystem idea. Yeah, that sounds really good. So why do you think it is important to bridge research and practice in learning analytics? I guess, uh, you know, my worry is that we'll get stuck, that, that we as a, re as a community of learning analytics people risk getting stuck in the research loop. You know, we absolutely need the research and development. Of course, without it, there's nothing. But um, we can't only be doing learning analytics for the purposes of learning analytics research. That, you know, there's got to be a point where we get out of that loop and start getting and stop testing and start getting it into the hands of, of the people who need it. I'm aware of practitioners and educators being frustrated, you know, kind of saying, okay, you've been talking about this for a decade, but give me something I can use. Um, so that, that's why. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Um, I think so. I was thinking about this, and I think there's um, morally, I think we have an obligation to to use data in a way that that um, positively impacts student learning and experience, um, because data can really empower people 
uh, to do this. Practically, like Leah was saying, we need to demonstrate this return on investment of all the research we're doing into, into LA. Um, politically, um, I think it's interesting because the Australian government, at least, um, is, is driving a refocus on translational research. And so it's kind of, it behooves us to, to actually work on uh, translating this research into practice. And, um, and just on, on Leah's point, uh, point as well, frankly, it's really to ensure that we stay relevant as a field. Uh, like Leah said, people have been saying, you know, for a decade, where is this magic that you've been speaking mm. of? You know, where's yes. this promise of, of this thing? And so there's been so much hope and hype around LA. It'd be a shame to disappoint um, the teachers and the students and management. Um, we just need to yeah, get, get it into the hands of them to, to use it. Right. I think that the goal of learning analytics is not to publish papers and speak at learning analytics conferences, ultimately. Mm. Um, the yeah. goal of learning analytics research ultimately is and should be to support educators in um, making better informed choices yeah. and decisions. Absolutely. And, and we do see that trend happening because we ask questions like, where is the evidence? What is the impact? And it's in fact the yes. theme of the LAC conference this year. Yes. Um, so that's a great as, direction to go to. As we all know, the evidence is still quite thin in terms of publication of real solid um, use cases and, you know, demonstrations of improvements in teaching, you know, we're still, we still need to build up that literature. Hmm. Yeah. So you talked about ecosystems and different people working together, uh, but we do st still see practitioners and researchers are doing different sorts of work. So how do you think we can bring them together? Or do you think it is helpful at all? to even distinguish learning analytics researchers from practitioners? Danny, what do you think? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I'm glad you're asking it. I, I think like Leah was saying before, um, I think it's a spectrum and so you don't have just one or the other in one, one bucket. Um, you know, I'm primarily on the practitioner side of things and I attempt to do research occasionally just badly most of the time. Um, and so to, to answer this question, I, I was thinking, what do I struggle with um, in, from the kind of practitioner end of things? Um, and I think uh, I struggle with that. Um, Leah mentioned evidence is quite thin. I, I struggle with that. Um, I struggle with it primarily, uh, or two reasons. Well, one, because um, I, I lack the research expertise to do it properly and well. Um, and I think that's a place where the researchers can back the practitioners up a lot. Um, but I also struggle with it because when you're actually using LA in practice, teaching is messy. Um, classrooms are messy places, cohorts are messy, students and teachers are messy. Um, and so, in order to try and land the idea of um, how do we actually measure practice, um, if you have a particular LA tool that's been used in 20 different ways, how do you measure impact then? There's no kind of, there's no structure around how it's being used. There's no um, potentially consistent measure, measurable metric that you can utilize there. And so I think that's some of a place where researchers and practitioners can really work well quite, quite well together. But I do, I do really appreciate what um, Solar and LAC and JLA and, 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 and folk have been doing because um, in setting up things like practitioner papers um, at LAC and setting up the practitioner stream, for example, in, um, in JLA, um, it's really important because it gives practitioners a similar level of respect and exposure and opportunity to LA research. Like Leah was saying before, um, it, it does feel sometimes like practitioners are dismissed a little bit as technical people, just the people who code or just teach or something, but it's really great to see that um, Solar has these things in place to actually raise the, elevate the voices of practitioners. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm. I mean, I, I had, I had thought, thought that the spectrum idea was really useful as well, because like I said, we, you know, we need the people doing the 
pure research sounds a bit extreme, but the hardcore work at the research and development end, no question. But my own experience over the last decade um, in projects where I've really been trying to work with people in the teaching realm has really shown me where all the gaps are. So, you know, I see that most educators and most senior leadership are a bit afraid of data and they, they don't really have the data skills. They struggle with spreadsheets, never mind predictive models and, and so on. So mm. they lack the data skills. We have data scientists, but often the data scientists really don't have the understanding of um, educational models and educational theories to make good sense of the data. So we end up with, you know, the people who work on software development, for example, dumping out all kinds of metrics that are actually meaningless because mm. some software developer somewhere went, oh yeah, the, here's some data, Blunk. and uh, educationally it doesn't, it's not useful. Doug Clough years ago gave me the term data griot, the, 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 the kind of interpreters, the people that can help educators uh, interpret the data or the analytics that they're being given if they're be being given prepared reports of some kind, the storytellers who can, can help with the insights into the data. So, you know, I really think we need to see more of that kind of teamwork. And um, in the past year, I co-edited a special section of the Journal of Learning Analytics about learning analytics and learning design. And mm. several of the papers that ended up published in that section reported on use cases where there were teams of people kind of consciously positioned in in implementation projects for exactly that reason, because they understood that the educators couldn't do it on their own and the data scientists couldn't do it on their own. Yeah, it would be definitely useful to see a lot of those use cases to understand yes. what those experiences look like. In exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, um, so I was wondering if you can paint us a picture of how a successful learning analytics project in practice would look like. So where does the story start? <laughs> what does the process involve? Uh -huh. That's like how long is a piece of string, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I'm really uh, interested to hear more examples of how that looks like in practice. So um, maybe, Danny, do you want to talk about the SRES tool from your work? Sure. Um, so it, it's interesting because the, the, the SRES started as a side project. It was running on the server under someone's desk in chemistry way back in 2012. Um, and back then we had, um, I was coordinating a large first year unit with about 800 students and my colleague was doing a chemistry unit about 2000 students. And we had, you know, we had problems in reaching out to our students, helping students feel connected to their teachers. Um, they were feeling lost in the crowd like a number. And so we wanted to, at the same time, kind of be able to get some information about them, um, which wasn't readily available. Like, you know, are they coming to class? Are they participating in those kind of things? What do they, what do their tutors think about them? Um, plus, we also want to reach out to them at scale. Um, you know, 800 students, we can't be copy and pasting 800 emails. And so when we actually started, um, we, we, we built the SRES as a system which allowed all of those things to solve our problems as practitioner educators, essentially, um, to do that kind of personalized emailing feedback out in, in 2012. When we started, actually, we, we had no idea of the learning analytics field, uh, to my shame. Um, the first I heard of it, I think, was in, in LAC or uh, ALASI in 2014, when I went for my first ALASI, then I was like, wow, there's people working with data and students and bringing them together is amazing. And a final click click for me. So I think for the SRES, because we started with that kind of practical 
teacher-centric problem that we we're trying to solve. Um, it spread fairly quickly amongst our faculty and then the rest of the university. And so um, it, the, the, the software itself kind of co-evolved with teachers as teachers told their friends about it and said, hey, there's this thing I'm using, it could help you as well. Um, we're finding that kind of word of mouth thing really, really useful for, for spread. Um, and then the, the, the reason I think we've grown is that we've kind of worked alongside teachers and we've asked them continuously through encounters, be it like, you know, how do I do this? Or um, I'm having a trouble, uh, trouble with this particular educational problem or there's a bug in the software, I can't work it out. Through all of those encounters, we, we kind of say, well, okay, let, let's, let's fix this immediate thing. But also, what else would you like to do? Um, what else, if you could answer the question, if only SRES could, dot, dot, what would that sentence end up being? Um, and and the, the, the system has grown because of those ideas and those needs that have come from, um, come from teachers. And so I think now we're up to about 70,000 students on the system. We've got 40, 46,000 monthly users um, on average, 2,000 staff on it. Four other Australian institutions are using it. We've got LTIs, integrations with Canvas, those kind of things. But all of that really is just because the educators, the, the, the practitioners have told us, you know, what they need out of data uh, what they need out of a system that helps them to engage and relate to their students. Yeah. What, what really sticks up to me is it's actually starting from the ground up. Like there's a problem that they really need a solution for and then come up with something um, that can help them with that problem. Yeah, I was reflecting on this and it was, I was reading your paper again, the, the one that you, um, uh, last year where you uh, interviewed the people um, looking at Akarita. And yeah. that was really interesting because I, I, I see so many parallels between that and, and the and SRES. And because, again, Akarada is starting with a pedagogical problem. We're not starting with data and this, we have data warehouses and graphs and dashboards and that kind of stuff. We're starting with, we have real teachers with real needs, with real students. And then mm -hmm. how do we then leverage a simple piece of software um, to support them in their needs? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That's an approach that works really well. Yeah, I think actually both of those projects uh, are fantastic examples of things that have started quite small and localized and have been successful in being developed out to an institutional level or beyond. That's uh, it's cheering to know that that's possible. I think yeah. I, I, I often end up saying to, for example, students who are in my learning analytics course, in my experience, the, the learning analytics projects that are the most successful are the ones that begin with a pedagogical question or a real challenge. Whereas I've also encountered an array of institutions who are doing learning analytics because they think they should, um, because everybody else is doing it. And they don't mm. really have a, a good starting question. They're just gathering data and chucking it out there in the hope that someone will find it useful. All right. Um, so do you have any specific examples of tools or learning analytics projects being implemented in practice at your institution, Leah? Well, truthfully, you know, my own work, I think, in, to some degree was kind of the groundwork. I, I was, I've been engaged in a lot of what Danny kind of has described already, that so-called grassroots analytics, where my role in the Faculty of Arts allowed me to really begin with the question. So over time, individual instructors or perhaps curriculum committees or department heads or deans would come to me with the question or the problem that they were struggling with. You know, we seem to be losing students at the second year. Can you see what, you know, what the pathway is that they're taking through our curriculum and, and where they go or, um, 
what's happening that our courses you know we our courses fill up before the start of term and then they and then we put on extra sections and then they all drop out again so how can and then and we've panicked and recruited more staff and then we don't need them and so some of it was at that kind of very pragmatic course-based level and others was more focused on the, the learning. We've had some struggles at UBC getting hold of data that is more fine-grained around learning strategies, for example. Um, so more of my work has been involved in looking at um, things like enrollment pathways or learning design and patterns of behavior. But I feel as though a lot of that laid groundwork um, for later people to later feel more interested in what they got used to the idea of data being available and of being able to ask questions that data might help them with. And I also really grasped during that those early years the power of um, data visualization in particular, and especially for an right. audience of people who were a bit scared of data. Um, mm. you know, I had experiences uh, surprising for me at the beginning where I would produce you know, tableau reports for the dean about international student achievement across different areas or something and got this kind of wow response. I've mm. never, I've never seen the data like this before. You know, they, they've been so yeah. used to being handed tables and you know, spreadsheets that they kind of struggle to interpret. So none of those qualify as a kind of established project. I think I've been operating at the a different kind of experimental level mm. of introducing the possibility of data and working yeah. collaboratively with people yeah. across many different areas. Yeah, exactly. I think it's about opening up and letting them know of the different opportunities and possibilities or affordances yeah. of what data can help them with. Yeah. Right. So from your experience, what do you think are the barriers for such implementations that are successful in practice? Well, one area of my work over the last decade in collaboration with others, so a whole range of us involved in trying to move analytics ahead in our own institutions, I've been involved in work exactly looking at this problem. You know, what, what are the things that are needed for successful implementation? Um, what are all the pieces of the system that you need to look at if you're trying to make that that kind of change at the pragmatic level i would say my own experience is before you start you've got to do the work with data ethics and data governance and consultation and transparency um, before you start building anything or rolling it out across your institution get your data ethics decision making process established establish principles, share them with people, consult with your faculty, and the same on data governance. Who's looking after the data? How's it, who's going to get access and why and for what purpose? And make sure that the, the principles are reasonable and you know, meet both data privacy considerations, but also the, that moral obligation that Danny was talking about, about using mm. the data for the better. But I've got to tell you, the thing that I encounter most frequently as a barrier, and it's related, is mistrust. Many of my colleagues and students are quite suspicious about the idea of learning analytics. They've got analytics, AI, big data jargon in their heads. They've read mm. media reporting, scandal reporting. They're concerned that it's big brotherish. And yeah. students, for reasons that I don't understand, the large majority of people, 
immediately leap to the notion that learning analytics is all about assessment and that whatever the university might be implementing in relation to analytics is going to be used to grade them or assess mm. them in some way. So I spend a lot of time offering examples like ACA writer Shibani saying, yeah. no, no, he, so here's an example of learning analytics that's a tool for learners to help them work on their uh, writing or, you know, so I'm not sure how that has become so um, skewed and what, why there's such, such a belief about assessment and automation and, you know, mm. teachers losing their jobs. But it, it, I think the transparency and consultation and ethics work would help with that, especially if you do that first. <laughs> yeah. But that's my two cents. Thanks. What, um, do, you see, what do you think, Danny? I completely agree with all those. Um, and the, the pragmatism around establishing those bases is really important. I, I think the other big thing, and this is one thing that um, Leah's uh, paper a long, long time ago um, uh, uh, put me onto, is just we need to consider the workload of, of the people who are doing it. Um, we need to con mm. consider how they're actually going to be adopting the whole thing. And so but for us, I think that the biggest thing in terms of adoption has just been workload. Um, LA needs to alleviate the workload for the teachers because uh, they're, they're increasingly under pressure to do so many more things, especially during COVID. Um, and so we either need to alleviate the workload or we need to be able to show them that LA will at least redirect their workload. So instead of doing this thing that was really boring and mundane before, now you get to use the time because LA will fix things to do something else, which is more supportive for your students. Something yeah. else that, that is really important, I think, is um, action, um, the ability for teachers to see LA not just as a thing that they can look at, but they can actually do something with. Um, yeah. And, and not just do something with in terms of LA or tell me some information and then I'm going to go away myself as a teacher and do something. Um, that's, that's good too, but, but also that the tool itself um, needs to actively help them to actually do whatever they, they need to do. And as part of that, this, it really means that the LA tools need to be flexible enough to allow that um, and to allow teachers who come in with perhaps little data literacy or little understanding of what they could do with it um, to start small and then grow their use and understanding of it as they go. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, that's why I've argued that the kind of grassroots analytics work has been important because, you know, we get institutional leadership who sometimes buy into big analytics solutions in speech marks that are often offer kind of one size fits all stuff that isn't that useful. And on the other end, we, we, we end up with these fine grained very focused specific to one area solutions that are useful but hard to scale. We're still yep. dealing with trying to meet some middle ground uh, for sure. Yeah. So you brought up some important barriers, mistrust, workload of teachers. I think these are really practical things you highlighted. So how do we overcome these barriers? Or do you have any suggestions or advice for that? I think my, you know, my, one of my new terms of the moment has been um, pragmatic analytics. You know, we could spend a lot of time sitting around saying, oh, you know, if only we had a such and such data lake or if better, if we could actually get XYZ data, then we could do all these other magical things. And so I, I've kind of re-engineered my perspective in the last couple of years to saying, okay, what can we do? Um, and, you know, what is possible within reasonable workload? Uh, that would be valuable. So I, you know, for example, I've been working with some colleagues on trying to make use of learning analytics for course evaluation and review of learning design. 
And it's been a bit of a patch job. You know, we had to go to one place to get the video data and we had to go to somewhere else to get the engagement data and then show them some social network visualizations. But again, with this group of faculty and new program leads who were new to online learning as well, they had no idea that it was even possible. So they were intent on doing their, court, their review using just the student feedback comments. And now I've been able to kind of pragmatically say, yes, let's look at the student feedback, but let's also cross-reference with what the data is telling us about what happened. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a huge undertaking, but pragmatically, it's very useful and possible. Yeah, I think it's a great idea to actually start with that idea of, of what, what can we actually do with it. And every university, every um, faculty, every person will have a slightly different take on what it is that they actually want to do with it. And so it behooves us to be kind of flexible in terms of how we approach that. The, the, the three things for me in terms of breaking down barriers, um, it's one, we need to solve a problem for them. Um, so Lee has got the, the, that problem was um, in curriculum review. They needed um, more information about how, how things were going, how students were finding it. Um, so that's the that problem for us at Sydney. The problem was uh, we need to connect with our students better you know, through, through mm-hmm. data and, and help those relationships out. Um, and so I, often in early analytics, we, we, the, the first thing we ask, we ask teachers is what question do you have? That you want to know the answer to. And I don't think that's the right question to ask. I think the right question is, what problem do you want to solve? And so what's the way in? Um, and, and to make sure, I guess, that that, that that thing is a pedagogically relevant, human-centric problem that we're trying to solve for them. So I think that's number one. Number two, I think it's uh, starting small, but allowing for growth. Um, and so the, the tool, the approach or something yeah. itself needs to have a range of different reasons for existence, um, different functionalities, because otherwise, if a person gets into it, it's either a a one-shot tool or it's a a one-size-fits-all kind of tool, then they're not going to be able to do much with it um, after they they, they, they get the hang of it. And so being able to have something which has a lot of um, endpoints, I guess, of of use uh, is quite useful. Mm -hmm. And the third thing I think is that idea of that, um, going back to the ecosystem idea, it's that we need to grow and support this ecosystem. And so it's fostering the community of users around it and the teachers and practitioners and researchers who support it, um, supporting the designers who support it and giving them the resources, documentation, training, um, so that they can actually support the teachers who implement this. And also as part of this um, growing and supporting champions, something that, that we're really big on is elevating innovations. Uh, and so the idea that once you've got one or two people who are doing great things of it, um, elevate their stories, uh, use that to mm. tell the university, to tell the world about what these amazing innovators are doing with data and the students um, so that you get, not only you get more interest in it, but also you um, spur these educators along to do more and more things. That was really insightful. Thank you very much, Leah and Danny, for talking to us on this very important topic. It was really great to have you both on the podcast. Thanks. That was fun. At the end of our podcast, we invite our special guests to play a fun game called Two Truths and a Lie. Guests will share with us three statements about themselves, two are true, and one is a lie that we should find out. Before we go on, let's hear answers from the previous episode. Let's hear some interesting uh, facts about Elisa and David. Okay, all right, I'll go first. Uh, Here's my first statement. When I was growing up, my family kept many pets. And there was one stage when we had 21 hamsters at home. Here's my second statement. I love fishing. One of the highlights of my fishing trips was hooking a large threadfin salmon in the Brisbane River a few years ago. I never caught such a big fish in my life, so that was a real achievement for me. And my third statement, I play both the piano and the guitar. I've been playing the piano since I was seven years old and the guitar just over two decades ago. Hmm, that's not easy to guess, actually. (laughs) 
Number one, I previously worked as a postman. Number two, my maternal grandmother lived until the age of 109 years old. And number three, I was the Hong Kong chess champion in 1987. Whoa. So which one is alive then? For me, I was the Hong Kong chess champion in oh. 1988. <laughs> so you were <laughs> a champion. Uh, I came to Hong Kong in 1988 and I was the Hong Kong chess champion. So that's oh, wow. incorrect. <laughs> but some people who know me may know I play chess and they may think it's true. Wow. Uh, my, grandmother, so they, my grandmother did live to the age of 109. Wow, that's amazing. Elisa, which one? Um, wait, let me guess first. Um, could it be the fishing one? Yes, you're right. It's the fishing one. That's actually more describing my husband. My husband is a fishing enthusiast. Oh. And he did actually hook this large threadfin salmon, <laughs> which is really... Oh, so that's your husband's story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, so Lisa indeed can play two instruments. Yeah, better at the piano, but the guitar is something that I do to, I guess, to relax sometimes. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> now let's invite today's guests to give us their three statements for Two Toots and a Lie. So the first statement is uh, that my preschool teacher was actually the one who named me, um, gave me my name, Danny. Um, the second statement mm -hmm. is that I'm actually a closet Apple fan, uh, and I only knock Apple publicly because um, I'm embarrassed to, to be a closet Apple fan. And the third one is I was actually an advanced ice skater in my youth. Oh, I think the second one is a lie, but we'll reveal the lies later. Leah, what about you? My first statement is, let me see, I am a certified scuba diving dive master. And I okay. completed that certification before I was 18. My second statement is I've spent lockdown shut in my apartment in Vancouver, working at home like all my UBC colleagues. And my third statement is that my normal form of transport is a large motorcycle. Cool. We'll know what the truths are and what the lies are in the next podcast. Thanks for listening to Solar Spotlight, conversations on learning analytics. You can subscribe to our podcast and find all available episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. Join us for our next episode in September 2021. In the meantime, look out for upcoming news and webinars from Solar. My name is Shivani Antoinette and I've been talking to Leah McFadden and Danny Liu on learning analytics practitioners and practice. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please tweet us at Solar Research using the hashtag Solar Spotlight. Until next time.